This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for January 8th. Pro-Palestinian protests near a prominent Toronto Jewish neighborhood have sparked backlash. We'll get reaction from a leader in the Toronto Jewish community. Plus, Honda has plans to meet with the federal government as it reportedly considers a multi-billion dollar investment in an electric vehicle plant in Ontario. We'll talk to the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. And the power panel weighs in on what this could mean for Canada's economy. We begin today in a prominent Jewish neighborhood in Toronto where a series of nearby protests have sparked controversy. This was the scene on the Avenue Road Bridge over Highway 401 on Saturday. Pro-Palestinian protesters have been demonstrating on the overpass for nearly a week. On Sunday, Toronto's police chief had to issue an apology after this video of officers handing coffee to protesters was posted on social media. It has also been criticized by some Jewish politicians. They say the protests on Avenue Road are purposefully targeting the surrounding Jewish neighborhood. In a post on X, Quebec Liberal MP Anthony Housefather said there is no logic as to the choice of this location other than the large local Jewish population. Ontario Conservative MP Melissa Lansman also weighed in, saying, seems like the target is a Jewish neighborhood, because it is. For more on how these protests are affecting the Toronto Jewish community, I'm joined by Noah Schack, Vice President of Countering Antisemitism and Hate with the UJA Federation of Greater Toronto. Mr. Schack, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Obviously, by your title, and, and you work in the fight against anti-Semitism, as you have for much or most of your professional career, how, how would you describe the moment we're in right now in this country? It's a very tense moment. It's uh, a moment where uh, our values as Canadians are under threat with each hate crime that's being perpetrated against members of the Jewish community. And there have been a lot of them, a massive spike in anti-Jewish hate since the Hamas terrorist attacks on October 7th. Uh, we're seeing it in our streets. We're seeing it in our schools, at our universities, in our workplaces. It's a truly frightening time, not just for the Jewish community, but for everyone who believes that we should be able to live free from hate uh, and intimidation and harassment in our cities all across Canada. It's not surprising that a moment like this with what's happening in Gaza and in Israel would spark protests. Uh, you saw them at the Israeli embassy here in Ottawa, for example, very early in the conflict. But what do you make of the nature of how these protests are evolving, like this Avenue Road protest, where the intention seems to be Jewish-Canadian neighborhoods rather than, say, Israeli government offices and buildings. The Avenue Road overpass over the 401 is a long way from the Israeli consulate downtown. Uh, it, it, buys, it, it is the linkage between uh, two largely Jewish neighborhoods on either side of the highway. And it's been shut down regularly uh, almost every other day for the last uh, number of weeks with uh, concerns from police about public safety. Uh, the police have been closing it down because of these protests. This is not a sustainable situation where people are feeling intimidated and harassed uh, and targeted just because of who they are and where they live. And it's part of a broader phenomenon that we're experiencing where just yesterday, families going to have a skate uh, at Nathan Phillips Square uh, on the last Sunday of winter break uh, were accosted by demonstrators uh, showing support for Hamas, a terrorist organization listed in Canada. 
um, this they, they wouldn't let the Zamboni out uh, to to resurface the ice. Um, this is this is disruption uh, on a whole other level. Uh, and again, it's targeting Canadians going about their regular lives, whether it's members of the Jewish community in their neighborhoods or members of the broader public going to the mall to sit on Santa's lap, uh, going to uh, have a skate during winter break, uh, trying to get through across the 401 to go visit friends and family. Uh, And it's happening over and over and over again. And enough is enough. It's time uh, that we we make it clear that a small group of activists uh, shouldn't be able to bring life to a standstill in Canada's largest city. Right. So I mean, Nathan Phillips Square is a popular place uh, for protests and, and gatherings and vigils. And, and so, it, you know, it's not uncommon to see people voicing disagreement or support for causes in a place like that. But, but, but the, you know, the Avenue uh, Road neighborhoods, um, that seems new, right, in, in the way that that, that is happening. I, I just wonder what you're hearing from the people who live on either side of that bridge and how they're feeling having the sort of the, you know, the, the anger over what's happening, um, you know, in Gaza uh, coming to their doorsteps. Well, I, I just want to point out, though, that there's demonstrating in Nathan Phillips Square, which, of course, happens, I think, almost every single weekend in, in our robust democracy. And then there's going down onto the ice to stop people from enjoying the venue. And I think yes, that that's, that that's a, a fair point. Yes. Um, in terms of the neighborhood, look, people are unable to get in and out of the neighborhood through that main artery uh, connecting uh, it with the rest of the city. Um, this is not just an inconvenience of people being trapped by protesters shouting obscene things, uh, hateful things. Uh, it, it also has an impact on, a, on ability for ambulances to get through, for people to use public transit, um, and, and has serious consequences for residents of the area. Um, and, and as we've seen these protests continue to escalate, right, moving out of the downtown core closer and closer into uh, areas where Jewish people are going about their daily lives uh, with harassment and intimidation and even uh, uh, hate crime, uh, targeting people, um, uh, there is, this is a time of serious concern and fear that people have that it will continue to escalate if left unchecked. And we don't have to look very far to see a good example with the arson attack on a Jewish-owned deli in North York, uh, not too far from where these protests are happening, um, uh, directly linked to the protest movement uh, with Free Palestine spray-painted across the doors of this establishment. Um, I think that's what's most concerning for people. It's not just that this neighborhood is being disrupted and and people's lives are being shut down uh, on a regular basis with police having to close the on-ramps to the 401 and the overpass on Avenue Road because of safety and security concerns. Um, It's it's about what that escalation means and where it's going next. And and we've seen time and again that hateful words lead to hateful actions and that those hateful unfortunately spiral if, if we don't do anything about them. Right. Yeah. No, no, going back to the point where we started this, uh, like uh, the, the Israeli embassy, the Israeli, Israeli comp, uh, consulate, uh, fair game, really, for, for public protest, you know, in, in the acceptable parameters of what happens here. This is different. Obviously, the police role in, in what happened at the IDF Delhi, as you talk about, is very clear. Investigate it. Find out who did it. Lay charges. What's the role in a situation like the blocking of a bridge? I mean, that may be intimidating, but the act in and of itself 
is is not violent per se. Uh, and there was the criticism of, of the police delivering coffee or donuts or whatever it was uh, over the weekend that led to an apology. There were similar things here in Ottawa during the convoy occupations where the local residents were deeply frustrated by de-escalation tactics by police. What do you want to see police do in a situation like these blockading of bridges? Because there is a right to protest in Canada. How do you want them to approach dealing with something like this one? Look, Toronto is a, is, a, is the largest city in Canada. It's a very big place. There are lots of places within the city to protest. Um, the fact that these demonstrators keep coming back to the same location uh, every couple of days, prompting police to have to shut down the bridge, shut down the on-ramps, uh, and, and cause massive disruption along the 401, along the city streets and the neighborhoods, impacting businesses, impacting families, uh, in this one area in particular, um, you know, this is something that is not sustainable. And, and so there is an expectation that we won't let this status quo go on, uh, um, and on and on that, that there ha- something's got to give and it's got to give now. Uh, how long are residents expected to be impacted in this way? In particular, that it appears this is targeting Jewish residents uh, because of their affinity and closeness and identification with the people of Israel. And and I think, you know, just to go back to your other point about the legitimacy of protesting uh, the consulate, for example, as a, a representative office of the government of Israel about disagreement over policies or approaches mm-hmm. taken by of Israel, 100% that's fair game. These protesters are going on a bridge in a predominantly uh, or largely Jewish neighborhood, uh, chanting for Jews to be driven out of Israel, uh, calling for the country to be destroyed, uh, and with a whole bunch of ugly uh, libelous claims about uh, about uh, the Jewish people and, and the state of Israel. And um, this is hateful. This is not about policy change. This is about destruction. And and to do so uh, specifically in proximity to where so many Jewish people are just trying to go about their normal daily lives, um, you know, that is deeply concerning. And it's not something that we should uh, allow to continue day in, day out. Um, enough is enough. We, we've seen politicians denounce these actions and condemn anti-Semitism, also condemning Islamophobia. Um, But we saw this incident with the police over the weekend, which obviously caused some consternation in terms of how seriously this is being taken. Do you think political leadership, law enforcement leadership in the country is taking the threat of anti-Semitism? Aside from these specific incidents, do you think they're taking it as seriously as they need to right now? I'll say say about the Toronto Police Service that they have deployed significant resources, uh, uh, both proactively and reactively, to... uh, uh, address uh, the spike in anti-Semitism, mm. the spike in hate crime that we're experiencing, uh, both in terms of, of having uh, mobile command centers in neighborhoods, in terms of be- boosting uh, investigative capacity. And we have full confidence that the investigation into the arson attack on a Jewish deli in North York uh, will yield results. That's that's the expectation. And, and, and we really appreciate the, the rigor that the police are putting into that. Uh, I think this is uh, that was a real wake-up call for a lot of people, uh, just how far things have come. The police refer to it as a tipping point. And I think um, it's important that everybody open their eyes to the impact that these uh, demonstrations are having on residents in the city, day in, day out. People who want to go visit friends and family, who want to go out and 
buy groceries, people who want to go take their kids skating, um, and and even emergency vehicles, public transportation, uh, and 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 things that are are are, are not just uh, important for daily life, but but essential, um, are being blocked as a result of of these demonstrations that are happening over and over and over again. Um, and and the harassment and intimidation that, that that is happening is taking its toll on the community. Right. It really is. And, and it's important for people to be aware of that. Look, um, freedom of expression is so important to all of us as Canadians, but it shouldn't be an excuse to harm other people. And, and we just need to be uh, mindful and respectful. And, and if the impact that these demonstrators seek to have is policy change for the Canadian government, for the Israeli government, then I, I fail to see how protesting in a way that only has negative impact on Jewish Canadians right. is achieving those objectives. It seems that their intentions are otherwise. Noah Shack, I, I want to thank you for your time. That's Noah Shack, Vice President of Countering Anti-Semitism and Hate with the UJA Federation of Greater Toronto. Thank you, sir. Thank you. CBC News has learned that a team of Honda executives will be in Canada this week to meet with officials from the federal government. This comes after a Japanese news outlet reported this weekend that Honda is looking at investing more than $18 million to build an electric vehicle plant here that could also produce batteries. The automaker is reportedly looking at a site next to its existing facility in Ontario, among a number of other possible locations. Okay, for more on what this potential deal could mean, Flavio Volpe is the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, and he joins me now. Uh, so, Flavio, the, you know, the federal and, and Ontario governments have already made investments in other EV battery producers like Volkswagen and Stellantis. What's special about the possibility of a deal with Honda? First of all, Honda is already here. They've been here for 38 years making uh, the best-selling car in Canada, the, the um, Honda Civic. They are uh, one of the world's uh, leaders in uh, environmentally friendly and very fuel-efficient internal combustion engines. So that when they take their shot at EV and batteries and that they consider doing it here, uh, this is the real Shohei Otani deal for, uh, for Canada. Uh, when they talk about $18 billion in investment, that's the company's um, investment envelope, which would right. make it two, two and a half times as big as the as the Volkswagen one, which was the biggest one uh, in Canadian history, after the Stellantis one, which was the biggest one at five billion. So you're seeing uh, a scale difference here that's incredible. Okay, I'm glad you said 18 billion with a B because I said 18 million with an M, and I'm wrong. It's 18 billion because you're not getting much for 18 million dollars in electric vehicle manufacturing uh, these days. But but you know, uh, uh, the Canadian officials are meeting with representatives of Honda this week. Now, sometimes a meeting is just a meeting. But what do you make of this? They had the news report coming out of Japan, statements which did not throw any water on the speculation at all, and now we find out there's going to be a meeting here in the nation's capital. Well, I, I think that your viewers need to understand that this is this happens. This is probably happening with 20 automakers right now. Mm -hmm. Canada and Ontario or Quebec going out and pitching these automakers to say, look, we have the people, we have the resources, we have the infrastructure. Come and invest here. Bring us your best proposals. And those automakers coming uh, uh, with responses. Very importantly, uh, I think we all expected that Honda would be having conversations with the government of Canada because they're one of the biggest investors uh, in this space, in this country. That site in New Tecumseh in Alliston mm -hmm. is the biggest employment site in Canada. 
Um, and they've designated that plant after we signed the CETA with the Canada EU trade agreement. Uh, they designated the global lead plant for their Honda Civic. So it's already a strategic plant where they sell to Canadians, they sell to Americans, and it's the window into Europe. And so the idea that we might have a shot at this, and I think we're probably talking about it because uh, we're on a, we're on a, uh, on a short list, uh, should be very exciting to everybody who's in the auto sector, but also uh, for people who aren't to understand that the biggest employer single employer in Canada is about to is considering doubling down here with the products uh, that they're going to export around the world you know it couldn't be a better profile you mentioned CETA uh, and the Europe trade agreement we had there and how this became you know the the, the main uh, hub for, for their most popular car uh, Europe is yep. also coming down pretty hard on the idea of the gasoline engines and going aggressively into the transition to electric vehicles uh, if, I mean, if it was good enough for the Civic, it seems good enough for the electric Civic, right? Do you think that is what plays into the thinking there corporately? Right. I think Honda Civic is an iconic product that will tell us whether we can get close to this 100% uh, EV target or not. I've been saying it's impossible because cars like Honda Civic are for regular people who have uh, a regular income who go out and buy twenty, twenty-five thousand $25,000 cars. If the EV um, uh, batteries cost twenty to twenty-five thousand, it's hard to see how we're going to sell uh, right. uh, vehicles in that set. If Honda says they can do it, and they're going to do that here because they're they've already got an existing supply chain and a platform, but close to those uh, uh, raw materials, we should absolutely partner with them if we are serious and not just rhetorical on getting to one hundred percent. And if Honda cracks that code here and sells. Uh, into the U.S. to help the Americans achieve their targets and into Europe to achieve those targets. Uh, well, we've won an investment that uh, the only way that could be better is if Honda was a Canadian car company and that, you know, all those decisions were domiciled here. There's, there's a lot of money, though, that goes into this, right, uh, Flavio? We've, yeah. seen, we've seen billions of, uh, you know, production subsidies. They've got to build the batteries and sell the batteries to get the money, but put on the table for, for Stellantis, for Volkswagen. We've seen in Europe today uh, uh, 90, uh, was it 902 million euros uh, for Northvolt to build a factory in Germany. I mean, what kind of an outlay do you think Canada could be looking at if Honda is going to do this in Canada, given that there's precedent of multi-billion dollar deals on the table already? If the reports are correct, and what Honda is contemplating here is building a hub that manufactures the vehicles, and then the intelligent technologies that that manage the 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 the, uh, the batteries mm -hmm. and the powertrain, and then the batteries, we're going to see what I think is a disproportionately lower um, uh, uh, federal subsidy to be able to land this one here, because it 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 won't be tied to how many batteries do you make and when do you make them. And we, th I think what we're looking at is a potential production start that brings us way into this 10-year window that was us matching the American IRA uh, right. on battery production. I think this might be a traditional deal where we say, look, you want to be in the major leagues, what's the franchise fee? It's participating in the factory, in the tooling, uh, in the initial capital. So, you know, I think uh, uh, Canadians have been preconditioned to hear these battery deals are going to cost tens of billions of dollars over a course of 10 years. Well, this is Honda saying, no, we're going to invest tens of billions of dollars. And um, I, I, I think that if we get to the point where the next time we have me on is because we've landed this, uh, you can quote me. I think that number is going to be uh, a, a lot smaller uh, than the numbers that we've seen uh, to date. 
Right. So rather than a production subsidy, because they now have those the tax credits more or less ready to go in a lot of cases, those would probably apply with a lot of the investments. And then the sort of ballpark capital investment uh, money up front through the Strategic Innovation Fund, you think it's going to be that kind of a deal rather than production subsidies? It is, because the only reason we were in production subsidies on batteries mm. was because we needed to match the Americans or else um, you know, we wouldn't have been competitive. There is no production subsidy on cars. And Honda is proposing here, according to the report, making those cars. And so uh, when it's just cars, it's that it's that strategic innovation fund, it's those uh, green investment tax credits on the original build, and then have at it. How big, just as a final point, uh, you know, would this be for the Canadian EV industry if, if Honda does do this? I, I know you're a part of this industry, right? So you get how important Honda is and its existing facilities. What would something like this mean, mean for that sector and its ability to become this big player that the government's clearly betting on? So a lot of people are not in the industry think that, uh, that the success of companies like Tesla or of Infast or BYD out of China is what's going to define the future. Future is going to, our success against Target is going to be defined by the best uh, engine companies in the world like Honda. Mm -hmm. How do they manage this transition? They have the volume capacity. They have a century of technical know-how. And um, they have this cultural commitment to uh, transitioning this all properly. Doing it here, uh, first of all, is unprecedented. I don't know anybody else that has proposed uh, to do that. And doing it at a scale, $18 billion of investment in one place is incredible. You know, uh, uh, over the past 15, 20 years, I've been involved in trying to land new automotive plants. Uh, they usually sound like $800 million, $1 billion, $2 billion. Right. Uh, what, what Honda's talking about here is making Alliston, Ontario, potentially New Tecumseh or, or, or the area around it. Uh, their number one hub in this hemisphere, and it is, it will be absolutely transformational for the region. Flavio Volpe, thank you for your time as always, the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. Thank you, sir. Thank you, David. CBC News has learned that a team of Honda executives will be in Canada this week to meet with senior government officials. This news comes amid reports the Japanese automaker is considering making an $18.4 billion investment to build electric vehicles in Ontario. Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne did not confirm discussions today, but he sent a statement in part that reads, uh, Reports about Honda looking to make a significant investment in Canada speaks to the quality of workforce and the strength of our industry. That's not a denial. So is Ottawa gearing up to spend more money on electric vehicle manufacturing right here in Ontario? All right, we're going to bring in the power panel. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. Lisa Raitt is a former Conservative Cabinet Minister and now Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking with CIBC Capital Markets. And here with me in Ottawa, Vandana Cotter, a political consultant and a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And Rob Russo, the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist. Gang, it's good to see you. It's been a minute. Uh, <laughs> Vandana, let's start with you. Uh, look, the federal and provincial governments, I think Ontario is probably involved in these conversations with Honda, if I, if I was a betting man. They've already got a lot of money put into Volkswagen, put into Stellantis. How do you think the public will react to potentially more money going into a Honda plant? 
I think it depends what happens with it. I think, mm. I mean, more money in a Honda plant can also mean more jobs, the more jobs outside the greater Toronto area. So I think that's going to be really important. So I think as long as you can see a tangible investment that gives, you know, that gives something back and creates a job in a community that could be smaller and that, you know, people re- rely on, I think people can be fine with that. Lisa, it's $18 billion mm. in private money, yeah. uh, which is a pretty big mm. deal. And we had Flavio Volpe on from, from the Auto Parts Manufacturers Association earlier in the show, and his read of the timeline and the reported intentions is that it'd be a much smaller output from the federal government uh, mm. w- once this is done for potentially a much bigger deal than what we've already seen, as, which are pretty big deals. Well, what's your take on this one? So if you pull back a little bit, Honda made a commitment last year that they were going to be increasing the production of EVs, and the, they actually have a joint venture with uh, LG in order to produce batteries as well. So they started in the United States, and they did a deal. Just to give you the concept of the size of the deal, so in Ohio, they did a deal. It's $4.8 billion facility that they're going to manufacture, but they only ended up only. They ended up receiving about $400 million in incentives from the state of Ohio, so a little bit in taxes, a little bit in workforce and a little bit in waived fees so that's the kind of i would say the um that's the quantum i'm looking for i'm looking for how much the government is going to be putting in in order to entice them to take a look at their their current footprint of real estate in canada and ensure that they're going to be putting their new production of the civic here in canada because they've chosen to do the accord in the united states yeah well 400 million dollars is practically free when we're talking about electric vehicles these days so so brian uh, one of the things that flavia volpe mentioned what was the Civic and, and how with the trade agreement with Europe, Honda's looking at making its existing facility sort of a core part of that. This would seem to suggest that maybe the electric version of the Civic or other things could potentially be, you know, the centerpiece of, of industry. What, what do you make of, of what's been laid out so far, even though this is clearly not a done deal? No, it's far from it. And just mm-hmm. just to uh, to disclose, uh, Council of Public Affairs works uh, with uh, with Toyota uh, here in in Canada throughout uh, throughout the uh, okay uh, throughout uh, the country. Um, but yeah, it's far from done, and that, that's that's a cautionary point that that Honda is just kicking the tires and looking at where they're they're, they're going to w- want to do that. But even uh, it makes sense that Canada is part of part of the discussion, not only with the existing uh, plant that uh, Honda has uh, here in Ontario. Uh, but also the commitment that the provincial and federal governments have made to other, uh, you know, parts of the of the of the electric uh, vehicle and battery uh, chain makes makes abundant sense. The question is, uh, you know, how much uh, does the feds and the province need to put in in order to get to a yes? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what considerations are automakers and 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 battery manufacturers making? We've got the U.S. election coming up. Uh, the presidential election coming up later this calendar year. Uh, what will what what would a ch- what would a potential change in government make to make Canada look a little bit more attractive potentially mm-hmm. with the with the with the possibility of a Trump election? And I'm not predicting that, but I know that you know decision makers uh, you know for for global investment are looking at that and saying is Canada a safer bet at this stage. Uh, to augment what they've already got going on in Ohio. And I think that that's a consideration, not only for Honda, but for other uh, folks who are considering where to put their investment in North America. Rob, that sounds like a great centerpiece for a piece someone should write for The Economist. I, I mean, what, <laughs> what's your take on that? Because it, it is a, this has sort of been the argument in favor of CETA, CPTPP, and NAFTA, that Canada is well-positioned going in all directions on trade. And, and Trump, as we know, 
he's not exactly a free trader. No, and there's something else in their statement um, that uh, that they mentioned in the initial reporting, and that's one of the things that they're looking for is a source of reliable, renewable energy, mm. uh, and and they they have that in abundance in Canada. That, that's one of the things that uh, is a, is a distinct Canadian advantage for people who want to come here. Um, I, I I think that Honda is actually playing a lot of catch up. In, uh, both Honda and Toyota are very late to the EV game. They uh, they, they've been very good in terms of hybrid. They need a win. Uh, they, they, Honda had something called the e-car that launched in Europe, uh, which was a dud. They've discontinued it. Mm. Um, so if this is, uh, if, if this is uh, their serious effort, uh, um, uh, look, it, 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 it sounds interesting. I, I, I also take your point uh, about uh, what uh, Minister Champagne has said. Uh, Brad said it's not a done deal. Uh, if it isn't, then uh, he's got to throw some ice water on inflamed investment loins. Yeah. Um, that that's uh, uh, he's, he sounded very much like a guy who wasn't trying to knock down this story. I think I think people are expecting this. The third point I'll make is about politics. Mm. Uh, Pierre Poilievre has been very successful in southwestern Ontario, getting workers interested in the Conservative Party again. And I think that this is one of the things that the Liberal government or the Liberal Party is trying to do there. They, too, are trying to play catch-up with workers in right. that part of Ontario, and this is a part of that effort. Well, well, I mean, but Honda presumably would have picked the location, right? Because they've got their existing plant there, it would make yeah. sense. So, yeah. I mean, it may but be... If you want to induce them, yeah. uh, then you're prepared to spend money to induce them, and, and uh, you, yeah. you can't take the politics out of, uh, out of this equation as well. No, Vanda, uh, uh, you certainly can't. And uh, what I wonder, because there has been some grumbling about the big money uh, deals, in, for example, in St. Thomas and, and other, if, you know, with Volkswagen and, and with Stellantis, that it's all in Ontario, right? Now, I know that's where the auto sector predominantly is, so where else is it going to go? But, you know, do you risk frustrating Alberta, Saskatchewan, you know, British Columbia, potentially, with, with big investments in central Canada? Or in cases like Alberta and Saskatchewan, they can see how two governments with different parties can work together. You know, Doug Ford also grumbled a little bit about the money and then came forward. They're also getting behind EVs and, and clean tech and industry here, and I think they want to, like everyone else, bring jobs to Canada and show that, you know, we have a strong economy, you know, we're stable here, and, you know, this is another feather in Champagne's hat, that he has been able to sell that Canada's a place to invest and he said before he wants it to be the strongest place for electric vehicle batteries and this will be another win for the Trudeau government if they can land this across the, uh, the finish line. It's a really good start to 2024 for them. Uh, Lisa, I'm not going to describe it as colorfully mm -hmm. as Rob did, but what did you make of the minister's statement there in, in terms of not throwing cold water uh, on investment, whatever the phrase was, uh, you know, on this? Like, What do you take from his statement about the seriousness of this? Because I got the sense today that they don't want to get too far ahead of themselves, but they're feeling pretty good about this one. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a placeholder, as we like to say in the biz. It's something to say in the, in the meantime, before you get to any kind of announcement. They don't want to spook the horses. They don't want to go out too far ahead of what Honda is saying that they want to do. There's a, there's a big, uh, there's a big show in Las Vegas this week. I'm sure there's going to be some announcements coming out of that and they don't want to get ahead of themselves. But look, I think it makes absolute sense that Honda's looking at Canada. The question is whether or not we don't fumble the ball, quite frankly, and make sure that we do get a, a fair share of what their EV production is going to be. To your question to Vandana, though, about what the, the West feels like, yeah. I recall very clearly what the reaction was when Jim Flaherty and Stephen Harper had to bail out the auto sector and the amount of acrimony that it did um, it did 
bring from from other provinces in terms of of what we did with uh, with that Canadian industry. So how do you manage that politically? At least as you were there, right? When not a similar thing, but you know, uh, same industry got a lot of support. Uh, how do you balance that? Because you can't let the auto sector fail. Obviously, in Canada, it's too central to, yeah. to the economic well-being of, of people through through spin-off and volume. How do you manage it politically when it's about this transition? We gave a billion dollars to carbon capture in Alberta. Mm. Yeah. To make sure that they got things going on their on their uh, on their facility. That's how you do it. Uh, it's true that Ontario and Quebec, up until uh, about 25 years ago, were the big winners in the in- industrial part of Confederation. But you've got to say the auto industry is probably about a fifth of, or, or a quarter of what it was uh, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, the number of jobs have gone down. Prosperity has gone up in Western Canada as well. GDP has gone up there compared to Ontario. So that, that might be the argument that they're going to make as well. Brad, uh, what do you think? How do, how do you manage this? If I mean, Lisa points out they give a billion dollars for carbon capture. They were just there for the, I think it was the Dow Chemical Investment and the ethylene cracker in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. This is something that had a federal government involvement in it. Um, is it just making sure your industrial policy is regionally balanced? Yes. You have to spread, spread the love uh, throughout the country. There's no question about that. But you know, when it comes to certain key sectors like the automotive sector, it, you know, it makes it, 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 it doesn't make abundant sense to, for other provinces to say, well, where's our piece of the automotive sector? So you have to say, what you know, what what does the West need? What does Atlantic Canada need? Uh, and then you have to show up, and you have to be, I think, I think consistent. I think the challenge for somebody like Polyev is going to have to be this decision that Honda is uh, is poised to make won't be made, uh, you know be made before the end of this calendar year, but construction doesn't start for many, many years. The question then for Polyev is, will he honor the commitments, any commitments that the federal uh, government is going to be making? Will that potentially scare off? Uh, will it squeeze uh, Polyev? Uh, and, you know, what, what do the other federal, what, you know, what would Singh say about what his policy is going to be? Because these companies are not going to be making the investments if there's fear that any change in government in the next federal election is going to put that uh, money at risk. Uh, Lisa, you look a bit skeptical there as Brad was laying that out. Is that, that the wedge the Liberals need, or, or what do you think of that? I agree with Brad's last part of his sentence, which is there's always going to be uh, companies that are taking a look at the political risk around it, but I, I don't see... Um, I, don't, I can't speak for the, any poly of government, but right. undoing these kinds of deals is a pretty big thing for a new government coming in. So I, I find it a little bit of a stretch, but I would be advising that, you know, the political risk on this would be minimal. But Vanden, I wonder if there's opportunity there for, for your crowd, which is looking for a wedge pretty badly right now, because the Conservatives haven't been loudly enthusiastic about these investments in the battery plants. The local MPs have, but, you know, they've raised questions about it rather than a full-throated endorsement of the, of the policies. I think there's an example where, you know, the Trudeau government wants to show that they can build Canada up, where someone's just talking about how it's broken. You know, they're talking about solutions, and, you know, it's really hard in federal politics to see the tangible outcomes of some of your policies, especially things like innovation. Yeah, you know, what Lisa said is right. I remember with the bailouts, but I see now where Windsor is and people are moving there. People are living good lives there and they have good jobs there because of the investments made then. So I think people can see the long term outputs of that. So I think what it can be is that, you know, we are still bringing in jobs to this country. You know, we are we are preparing for jobs of the future. Now, do you want a, a government that can still bring in these jobs and show that stability and prepare for the future? Or do you want a government who's just going to play and go backwards and actually maybe take us back? Okay, uh, we're out of time. I want to thank you all for being here with me. Rob Russo, Vanda Decotter, Lisa Raitt, and Brad Levine. Thanks so much. Thanks.
That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.